Section 4 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 10, European Leaders, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Sir Robert Peel, Part 2. To combat this unshaken traditional belief was a gigantic undertaking. It was the battle of reason and truth against prejudice and bigotry. The battle of a new enlightenment of general interests against the selfishness of unenlightened classes. While Villiers and Thompson appealed to members in the House of Commons, Cobden and Bright, with still greater eloquence, directly addressed the people in the largest halls that could be found. In 1838, Cobden persuaded the Chamber of Commerce in Manchester to petition Parliament for a repeal of the duties on corn. In 1839, the agitation spreading, petitions went up from various parts of the country bearing two million signatures. The motion to repeal, however, was lost by a large minority in the Commons. Then began the organization of free trade leagues. In 1841, a meeting in Manchester was held, at which were present 700 nonconformist ministers, so effectually had conversions been made among intelligent men. Nor did the accession of the conservative Sir Robert Peel to power discourage the agitators, for in the same year, 1841, Cobden was sent to Parliament. Meetings were still more frequently held in all the towns of the kingdom. A bazaar held in favor of the cause in the Royal Theatre, Manchester, in 1842, produced a clear profit of £10,000. In 1843, the Great Free Trade Hall was opened in Manchester, built expressly for public meetings for the anti-corn law agitation, and the sum of £150,000 was raised by private subscription to disseminate knowledge. At last, recognizing with keen instinct the inevitable turn in public opinion, the Times came out with a leading article of great power, showing a change of views on the subject of protection. Great noblemen, one after another, joined the League, and the Marquis of Westminster contributed five hundred pounds to the cause. The free trade movement was now recognized as a great fact which it was folly to ignore. Encouraged by the constant accession to the ranks of reform, the leaders of the League turned their attention to the registration of voters, by which many spurious claims for seats were annulled, and new members of Parliament were chosen to advocate free trade. At last, in 1846, Sir Robert Peel himself, after having been for nearly his whole career a protectionist, gave in his adhesion to the new principles. Cobden, among others, had convinced him that the prosperity of the country depended on free trade, and he nobly made his recantation, to the intense disgust of many of his former followers, especially of Disraeli, who now appears in Parliament as a leader of the protectionists. This brilliant man, who, in 1837, at the age of 32, took his seat in Parliament, had made no impression in that body for several years but having learned from early failures his weak points and by careful study of the success of others trained himself to an effective style of parliamentary speech he became at the time critical of peel's change of front the representative of shrewsbury and gradually organized about himself the dissatisfaction and indignation of the landed proprietors with sir robert peel's concessions to the free trade movement his strictures on peel were severe caustic and bitter what said this eloquent speaker shall we think of the eminent statesman who having served under four sovereigns who having been called to steer the ship on so many occasions and under such perilous circumstances has only during the last three or four years found it necessary entirely to change his convictions on that most important topic 
which must have presented itself for more than a quarter of a century to his consideration i must sir say that such a minister may be conscientious but he is unfortunate it is all very well for the right honorable gentleman to come forward and say i am thinking of posterity my aim is heroic and appealing to posterity i care neither for your cheers nor for your taunts it is very well for the right honorable gentleman to take this high-flying course but i can but say that my conception of a great statesman is one who represents a great idea i do not care whether he is a manufacturer or a manufacturer's son i care not what may be the position of a man who never originates an idea a watcher of the atmosphere a man who as he says takes his observations and when he finds the wind in a certain quarter trims his sails to suit it such a man may be a powerful minister but he is no more a great statesman than a man who gets up behind a carriage is a great whip all this tirade was very unjust though it pleased the protectionists for sir robert peel was great enough to listen to arguments and reason and to give up his old sentiments when he found them untenable even if he broke up his party his country was greater in his eyes than any party as prime minister peel then unfolded his plans he announced his intention to abandon the sliding scale entirely and gradually reduce the duty on corn and other articles of necessity so that at the end of three or four years the duty would be taken off altogether this plan did not fully satisfy the league who argued for immediate repeal indeed there was a necessity the poor harvests in england and the potato rot in ireland were producing the most fearful and painful results a large part of the laboring population was starving never before had there been greater distress on the second of march eighteen forty six the ministerial plan had to go through the ordeal of a free trade attack mr villers proposed an amendment that would result in the immediate and total repeal of the corn laws nevertheless the original bill passed the commons by a majority of ninety-eight it was at once carried to the house of lords where it encountered as was expected the fiercest opposition no less than fifty-three lords taking part in the discussion the duke of wellington seeing that the corn laws were doomed and that further opposition would only aggravate the public distress supported the bill as did lord aberdeen and other strong conservatives and it was finally carried by a majority of forty-seven before the bill for the virtual repeal of the corn laws was passed by the house of lords the administration of sir robert peel abruptly closed an irish coercion bill had been introduced by the government not very wisely even while the corn bill was under discussion by the commons the bill was of course opposed by the irish followers of o'connell and by many of the liberal party the radical members led by cobden and bright were sure to oppose it the protectionists full of wrath and seeing their opportunity to overthrow the government joined the liberals and the irish members and this coalition threw out the bill by a majority of seventy-three the government of course resigned nor was the premier loath to throw off his burdens amid calumny and reproach he cheerfully retired to private life he concluded the address on his resignation after having paid a magnificent tribute to cobden by whose perseverance energy honesty of conviction and unadorned eloquence the great corn law reform had been thus far advanced in these words in quitting power i shall leave a name severely blamed i fear by many men who without personal interest but only with a view of the public good will bitterly deplore the rupture of party ties from a belief that fidelity to party engagements and the maintenance of great parties are powerful and essential means of government i fear also that i shall be blamed by others who without personal interest adhere to the principles of protection which they regard as necessary to the prospects of the country 
that I shall leave a name detested by all monopolists, who, from less honorable motives, claim a protection by which they largely profit. But I shall perhaps leave a name which will sometimes be pronounced by expressions of goodwill by those whose lot in this world is to labor, who in the sweat of their brow eat their daily bread, and who may remember me when they renew their strength by food at once abundant and untaxed, and which will be the better relished because no longer embittered by any feeling of injustice. He then resumed his seat amidst the loudest applause from all sides of the house, and when he left Westminster Hall, leaning on the arm of Sir George Clark, a vast multitude filled the street, and with uncovered heads accompanied him in respectful silence to the door of his house. Sir Robert Peel continued to attend the meetings of Parliament as an independent member, making no factious opposition, and giving his support to every measure he approved, more as a sage than a partisan, having in view mainly the good of the country whose government he no longer led. It was soon after Peel's retirement from office that O'Connell, too, made his last speech in the House of Commons, not as formerly in trumpet tones, but with enfeebled voice. I am afraid, said the fainting athlete, that the House is not sufficiently aware of the extent of the misery in Ireland. I do not think that members understand the accumulated miseries under which the people are at present suffering. It has been estimated that 5,000 adults and 10,000 children have already perished with famine, and that twenty-five per cent of the whole population will perish unless the house will afford effective relief i assure the house most solemnly that i am not exaggerating i can establish all that i have said by many and painful proofs and the necessary result must be typhus fever which in fact has already broken out and is desolating whole districts it leaves alive only one in ten of those whom it attacks this appeal doubtless had its effect in demonstrating the absolute need of a repeal of the corn laws but it is as the liberator of the roman catholic population of ireland in the great emancipation struggle triumphantly concluded as early as eighteen twenty nine and the incessant labors after that for the enlargement of irish conditions that o'connell will be remembered honor glory and eternal gratitude exclaimed le courtier to the man who collected in his powerful hand the scattered elements of justice and deliverance and who pushing them to their logical conclusions with a vigorous patience which thirty years could not exhaust, at last poured on his country the unhoped-for delight of liberty of conscience, and thus deserved not only the title of liberator of his country, but the ecumenical title of liberator of his church. O'Connell, Cobden, and Sir Robert Peel, what great names in the history of England in the agitating period between the passage of the Reform Bill and that of the repeal of the Corn Laws! I could add other illustrious names, especially those of Brougham and Lord John Russell, but the sun of glory around the name of the first was dimmed after his Lord Chancellorship, while that of the latter was yet to blaze more brightly when he assumed the premiership on the retirement of his great predecessor, with such able assistance as Lord Palmerston, Earl Grey, Macaulay, and others. These men, as Whigs, carried out more fully the liberal and economic measures which Sir Robert Peel had inaugurated amid a storm of wrath from his former supporters reminding one of the fury and disappointment of the higher and wealthy classes when Mr. Gladstone, a still bolder reformer, although nursed and cradled in the tenets of monopolists, introduced his measures for the relief of Ireland. During the administration of Sir Robert Peel there was another agitation which at one time threatened serious consequences, but as it came to nothing it has not the historical importance of the Anti-Corn Law League. It was a fanatical uprising of the lower classes to obtain still greater political privileges, led by extreme radicals, of whom Mr. Fergus O'Connor was the most prominent leader, and Mr. Henry Vincent was the most popular speaker. 
the centre of this movement was not manchester but birmingham the operatives of manchester wanted cheaper bread those of birmingham wanted an extension of the franchise and as lord john russell had opposed the reopening of the reform question the radicals were both disappointed and infuriated the original leaders of parliamentary reform had no sympathy with such a rabble as now clamoured for extended reform they demanded universal suffrage annual parliaments vote by ballot abolition of property qualifications payment of members of parliament and the division of the country into equal electoral districts these were the six points of the people's charter not absurd to the eyes of americans but utterly out of the question in such an aristocratic country as england and advocated only by the working classes and their incendiary leaders discontent and misery were the chief causes of the movement which was managed without ability the agitation began in eighteen thirty six and continued to eighteen forty eight at first the government allowed it so far as it was confined to meetings speeches and the circulation of tracts knowing full well that as it made no appeal to the influential and intelligent classes it would soon expend itself i was lecturing at the time in birmingham and the movement excited contempt rather than alarm among the people i met i heard vincent two or three times in his chapel for i believe he was educated as a dissenting minister of some sort but his eloquence made no impression upon me it was clever and fluent enough but shallow and frothy at last he was foolishly arrested by the government who had really nothing to fear from him and imprisoned at newport in wales in england reforms have been effected only by appeals to reason and intelligence and not by violence infuriated mobs successful in france in overturning governments and thrones have been easily repressed in england with comparatively little bloodshed for power has ever been lodged in the hands of the upper and middle classes intolerant of threatened violence in england since the time of cromwell revolutions have been bloodless and reforms have been gradual to meet pressing necessities or to remove glaring injustice and wrongs never to introduce an impractical equality or to realize visionary theories and they have ever been effected through parliament all popular agitations have failed unless they have appealed to reason and right thus the people's charter movement beginning about eighteen thirty eight was a signal failure because from the practical side it involved no great principles of political economy nothing that enriches a nation and from the side of popular rights it was premature crude and represented no intelligent desire on the part of the people it was a movement nursed in discontent and carried on with bitterness and illegal violence it was wild visionary and bitter from the start and arose at a period when the english people were in economic distress and when all europe was convulsed with insurrectionary uprisings and revolutionary principles were mixed up with socialism and anarchy the chartist agitation continued with meetings and riots and national conventions until eighteen forty eight when the revolution in france gave a great impulse to it at last some danger was apprehended from the monster meetings and inflammatory speeches of the chartists and government resolved to suppress the whole movement by the strong arm the police force throughout the kingdom was strengthened and one hundred and seventy thousand special constables were sworn in while extensive military preparations were entrusted to the duke of wellington the chartists overrating their strength held a great meeting on kensington common and sent a petition of more than five millions of names to the house of commons but instead of half a million who were expected to assemble on the common with guns and pikes only a few thousand dared to meet and the petition itself was discovered to be forged chiefly with fictitious names it was a battle on the part of the agitators without ball cartridges in which nothing was to be seen but smoke ridicule and contempt overwhelmed the leaders and the movement collapsed 
although the charter failed to become law the enfranchisement of the people has been gradually enlarged by parliament in true deliberate english fashion as we shall see in future lectures perhaps the chartist movement may have ripped up the old sod and prepared the soil for the later peaceful growth but in itself it accomplished nothing for which it was undertaken the repeal of the corn laws in eighteen forty six was followed as was the reform bill of eighteen thirty two by a series of other reforms of a similar kind all in the direction of free trade which from that time has continued to be the established principle of english legislation on all the great necessities of life scarcely had lord john russell in eighteen forty six taken the helm of state when the duties on sugar were abolished no discrimination being shown between sugar raised in the british colony of jamaica and that which was raised in cuba and other parts of the world the navigation laws which prohibited the importation of goods except in british ships or ships which belonged to the country where the goods were produced were repealed or greatly modified the whole colonial system was also revised especially in canada and sanitary measures were taken to prevent disease in all the large towns of the country in the midst of these various reforms which the government under lord john russell prosecuted with great zeal and ability and by which a marked improvement took place in the condition of the people sir robert peel was thrown from his horse in london june twenty ninth eighteen fifty and survived but a few days his accidental death created universal lamentation for everybody felt that a great national loss had occurred in spite of the bitterness of the monopolists disappointed in their gains no death was ever more seriously and universally lamented in england other statesmen blazed upon their contemporaries with more brilliant original genius than peel but no one ever had more force of character than he or was more respected for his candor truthfulness and patriotism if he had not the divination to originate he showed transcendent ability in appropriating and making his own the worthy conceptions of others he was among those few statesmen who are willing to renounce the dearest opinions of youth and the prejudices of manhood when convinced of their unsoundness peel was a great administrator and a great debater his character was austere his temperament was cold his manners were awkward and shy he was chary in the bestowal of pensions and rewards and by reason of his rather unsympathetic nature he was never a favorite with artists and literary men it was his conviction that literary men were not sufficiently practical to be entrusted with political office hence he refused to make monckton milnes an under-secretary of state when gladstone published his book on church and state being then a young man it is said that peel threw it contemptuously on the floor exclaiming what a pity it is that so able a man should injure his political prospects by writing such trash nor was peel sufficiently passionate to become a great orator like o'connell or mirabeau and yet he was a great man and the nation was ultimately grateful for the services he rendered to his country and to civilization had his useful and practical life been prolonged he probably would again have taken the helm of state he was always equal to the occasion but no occasion was sufficiently great to give him the eclat which pitt enjoyed in the wars of napoleon under the administration of peel the country was at peace and no such internal dangers threatened it as those which marked the passage of the reform bill sir robert peel was one of the most successful ministers that england ever had certainly no minister was ever more venerated than he and even the duke of wellington did nothing without his advice and cooperation in fact he led the ministry of the duke as canning did that of the earl of liverpool and had he been less shy and reserved he would not have passed as so proud a man and would have been more popular there is no trait of character in a great man less understood than what we call pride which often is not pride at all but excessive shyness and reserve based on sensitiveness and caution rather than self-exaggeration and egotism 
few statesmen have done more than peel to advance the material interests of the people yet he never was a popular idol and his history fails to kindle the enthusiasm with which we study the political career of pitt or canning or disraeli or gladstone he was regarded as a great potentate rather than as a great genius and he loved to make his power felt irrespective of praise or censure from literary men to whom he was civil enough but whose society he did not court politics were the element in which he lived and politicians were his chief associates outside the family circle which he adorned and yet when distinguished merit in the church or in the field of literature was brought to his notice he was ready to reward it as a proof of the growing fame of sir robert peel no less than three biographies of him have lately been issued from the press such after a lapse of forty years indicates the lasting reputation he has won as a statesman but as a statesman only he filled no other sphere he was not a lawyer like brougham not a novelist like beaconsfield not a historian like macaulay not an essayist and reviewer like gladstone he was contented to be a great parliamentary leader alone authorities molesworth's history of england miss martineau's history of england justin mccarthy's life of sir robert peel allison's history of europe all of which should be read in connection with the lives of contemporary statesmen especially of cobden bright and lord john russell the lives of foreign statesmen shed but little light since the public acts of sir robert peel were chiefly confined to the domestic history of england end of section four